0: saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we just uh, thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity we get to, uh, as a body and as a, as a church and a family, that we can come together and open your word, and that we can look at the narrative text of Acts and learn and grow from it as we watch the story of the church's uh, beginnings unfold Um, Help it to encourage us, help it uh, to uh, convict us and challenge us this morning, and just bless our time. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Um, So, as most of you guys know, I grew up here, right? You all know who I am. Yeah, okay. Um, I uh, moved to Big Sandy when I was four years old, and I have lived in Big Sandy pretty much the majority of my life, because even after I graduated high school in like 07, yeah, I know, wow, he's young. I, I agree. I feel young. So even though I graduated in 07, I, and I went and, like, you know, I went, to, I went to Bible school for a year, and then I traveled to Wisconsin for a couple of years, and, uh, or, no, sorry, Iowa. My wife will correct me later because my, my uh, remembrance of the order of events is terrible, but just go with it for now. Uh, you know, I lived in uh, Iowa for a time where, actually, I met her, you know, journey song, love story, small town boy, city girl, anyways. Um, yeah, I did that. Anyways, and, and so, and then I lived in Wisconsin, worked in the youth ministry for a while, and then I ended up uh, moving to Chicago when I got engaged to my awesome wife, we lived here for like three years, and then we moved back here. And we've been back here ever since, so like 2013, I think we moved back here, and we've been back here ever since. And so, honestly, a majority of my life has been Big Sandy, Montana, which back in the day I would have considered sad, but now I actually am okay with it, it's pretty awesome, this is a cool town. Um, And so you would think that as a a man who has lived in a rural farming and ranching community that I would have a good, robust knowledge of what this town is uh, mostly about and what's that, farming and ranching. Now, I've done some research and I kind of just want you guys to play along for a minute. Um, We're going to talk about farming real quick. I'm going to give you some facts about how uh, to best work a farm so that you can produce the best crop. The things that you do as farmers. And what I want you to do is just pretend ignorance, pretend you have no idea, and I'm teaching you for the first time. If my facts are wrong, that's okay. Just giggle a little and tell me afterwards. But here we go. Facts about farming. From a guy who's not a farmer. Here we go. The first term I'm going to teach you is crop rotation. Crop rotation essentially means that fields who grow the same crop continuously for a long time, the nutrients in the soil is eventually depleted, right? And so eventually, you have to move it to a different field so that soil can get the nutrients for for the crop. Does that make sense? And so then the field that's been depleted, you hook up with some fertilizer for a while, and then it replenishes the soil so that you can plant the crop again. It's called crop rotation. Perhaps you guys were wondering, just a bit of uh, advice for you or some information. Uh, the next one is integrated pest management. Okay? And here's what that means. Uh, a lot of times when the same crop is grown for a long period of time, uh, the insects in the area will grow a dependence on it because it will be their main source of food. So in order to manage the insect problem, a lot of farmers will change the crop from time to time to throw off the reproductive cycle of an insect, because they're dependent on that one food. So if they change the food, the insects die. What? That's pretty cool, right? Just an interesting farm fact for you farmers, because I'm pretending to teach you right now, even though you're probably like, no, Jeremy, that's completely and utterly wrong. Just go with it. The next one, water. Water, obviously, is a very important thing for crops in order that they might grow, right? Did you know that 70% of the water's consumption in the world is due to agriculture, right? That's a lot of water. One way to help uh, people minimize the usage of water is irrigation systems. That's something that, uh, you, know, you know, a system you put in place to kind of help minimize the usage of water. Because, again, that's a lot of water to use up for farming. And so people have come up with these cool ways to create irrigation systems that helps them use less water. Interesting farm fact, right? I have a couple more. Well, actually, I have one more. Weeds. Oh, man. Weeds are a problem, right, farmers? You can say amen. Weeds are a problem. And so one way to deal with weeds, unless you're one of them hippie organic folks, which is cool. I'm not judging you. That's You do you. But most people to deal with weeds and actually insects, if they don't go with my previous thing about the um, integrated pest management, or IPM for short, as the people who know about it call it, Um, you can use insecticides and herbicides. These are commercial chemicals used to be sprayed on the crops to kill the weeds and keep the crops safe so that you can get a better crop. Now, these are all the things that you do as a farmer or don't do because I'm completely wrong, but just go with it for the sake of the sermon this morning. These are the things you do as a farmer. These are the actions that you take, the things that you do to the best of your ability so that you can create and make a good crop so that you can survive. Because for farmers and ranchers in this area, our main source of income, your main source of income, is your farm, right? Right. But at the end of the day, while we do everything that we can do, we do all the actions, all the integrations, all the management, all the crop rotation, all the things that we do as farmers. At the end of the day, we are kind of dependent on nature, right, to do the work as well. Or really does most of the work. We're dependent on the fact that, like, every time I put this seed in the ground, and if I water it and do all the things I do, it's eventually going to what? It's going to grow up. Right, We're dependent on the fact that it's going to grow and it's going to produce a crop. And sometimes, right, it doesn't work out. Sometimes you don't get the seed, you know, you don't get the the plant you quite needed or wanted or whatever, right? Things happen. You do what you can do, but nature does most of the work, right? At the end of the day, we're dependent on it. Hence why last year when we had a horrible drought, it affected everyone, right? You couldn't do anything about that. It was dry. You were dependent on nature. And so this morning, we're going to be walking through the conversion of Lydia, and she's an important person uh, in the history of the church. And um, just by way of review, Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, right? It was written by Luke, and it was written about the history and beginnings of the church. And I think the goal for for Eric, for Pastor Eric, as he's been walking through Acts, his encouragement and his push has been for us to walk through this book, walk through this narrative story of the beginning of the church, and to encourage us to look and be encouraged and challenged as a church body now on how we live and how we go about our days based on looking at the story of Acts. Does that make sense? And so that's what we've been doing. Um, And in this point of the story, like we looked at last week, we are into the missionary journeys of Paul. And, you know, last week Eric talked to us about discipleship and the importance of discipleship for us by looking at the story of Paul picking up his new boy Timothy, right? Right? And Timothy's now going to join them on their missionary journey. And Paul is going to disciple, love, mentor, encourage, challenge, rebuke, all those things to Timothy from here on out. And the encouragement for for us was, who are you discipling? Who are you being discipled by? Because we need that to grow. Because whoa, oh we need each other, as that one song goes, which I don't remember who sang it, but I know it has a whoa, oh in it. And so, it's catchy. Anyways, and so... This week, we're going to begin to look at, and, and there will be a, there'll be like three stories, and Eric will cover the next two, but this one, we're going to look at the conversion of someone, again, named Lydia, and we're going to look at, well, I guess what happened. So let's start in 11 and 12. So, setting sail to Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is, well, actually, no, no, I forgot to do something. Here, forgive me. I need to read a few verses before because I realize Eric only covered the first five verses, so he skipped a section. I'm going to read it real quick, and I'll explain it, and it'll make more sense. Here we go. Starting in verse 6. And they went through the region of phygrea and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mesea, they attempted to go into Bethnia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went from there to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, in a nutshell, here's what happened. They're going out. They're, they're seeking to go out and do the work of the Lord from city to city. And from time to time, they would go to cities and God would say, no, don't go there. Go, go this way. And they would, be, they would follow the promptings of the Spirit. Now, the temptation is, is to think that maybe like, oh, well, those cities weren't worthy of Paul's teaching and therefore bad city. But that's not the case. Simply put, the case is, is that God had trained and purposed Paul and his crew to go to the cities he had ordained them to go to. And those cities that they were trying to go to weren't the cities. And so in order to communicate that to Paul, he gave him visions and dreams so that he could know where to go next. And because Paul, being a faithful apostle, was dependent on the Spirit of God, right... Which we all need encouragement in, right? Like we all need to be more dependent on the Spirit, and so we can look at this story and see that Paul, being dependent on the Spirit, moved where God led him to go. He knew when God said no, and he knew when God said yes. You've probably had those instances in your life, right? I know I have. I um, once, when we were living in Chicago, I was offered a, a job as a youth pastor worship pastor at this big church, um, and I was like, ooh, and they would have hired me. Probably not because, well, they didn't know me that well. Let's just say that. And it was one of those rare moments for me where God straight up said, no, don't do it. And so I was like, ah but God, it's got a big stage and they have fog machines. And, but he said no. And like a good person, I I, I obeyed and said no. Um, and, And so that happens to us. And that's kind of essentially what's happened in this section above. All right. Back to the text at hand. Essentially what 11 and 12 is doing is it's setting us up for them eventually ending up in Philippi, which is an area of Macedonia, because they were led by the Spirit to go there. They were dependent on God to do the ministry that God had called them to. They were faithful to his calling on them. Right? And so they traveled... And they used God's means of travel to get there, which for most of them was boat and their feet, right? And so they get there. There she goes, old iPads working. And so a lot of times when Paul would go into a city, he would always start off by finding a synagogue. And then he'd go to that synagogue, he would sit down, and he would preach the gospel. But from time to time, you come across cities that didn't have synagogues. They didn't really have a heavy Jewish influence, so there were none there. And so they would do whatever it is they can do in order to create a situation where they can go and preach the gospel. And so in this case, a group of women would meet on the Sabbath by the river outside of the city. And it's most likely the case that they would do this because they feared that if they gathered in the city that the authorities would have a problem with that. Because a lot of times they were ordered to, you know, they would be worried that it's going to turn into a cult and that maybe they're going to revolt against the Roman Empire or something. Or they would be, you know, a little, because it was all women, maybe they'd be a little like, wow, what kind of cult thing they got going on here. And so because of that, to dodge that, they would just meet outside the city by the river. And so they would meet. And Paul, being the faithful servant of the Lord that he is, knows that if he's going to preach the gospel to people who want to hear it or need to hear it, he's going to, one, follow the Spirit, but he's also going to use common sense. Oh, they're down by the river praying to God. Oh, well, let's go there. And so they go to the river. And verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Now, seller of purple goods—maybe you're wondering what that means. Essentially, it means this girl's loaded. All right, she's like the CEO of her own company, right? She's got like the the, the fancy clothes and the nice watch and like the gold. But wait, there's myrrh—is that a seasoning? Anyways, you get it. That was a cheesy joke. Roll with it. Um, exactly. The, yeah. Um, and, and so she's, she's rich because essentially to make purple back then, to make purple clothes was a very hard and tedious thing to do. And so if you made it and sold it, you were loaded because purple was the color of royalty. So rich people, royal people, people who were in authority would most of the time wear purple. And so if you sold purple goods, like you're going to make some coin. You're going to make bank, make the bacon, if you say all those things. And so she was a rich and well-off lady. It also says that she was a worshiper of God. Essentially, to be a worshiper of God, it means that she knew the God of the Jewish faith. She believed in the God of the Jewish faith. But she had not taken all the crazy steps to become fully converted to Judaism. Okay. And so, to the best of her ability, her and these ladies would just gather and they'd pray together by the river. They probably didn't know much, but they knew something. And so they were probably curious. They were probably, maybe they were the type of women who were like, I just, I kind of, I want to know more. I want to understand. I want to see what's going on, right? Man, what rich soil for Paul to come and preach the gospel to them, right? I mean, that's the opportunity he's been given. Because they were seeking and searching. Because they already knew God was there, but they, they were just missing something. They couldn't, you know? And and, and this is a key text right here. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This text gives us a theological principle, if you will. And the theological principle is that God is the ultimate worker of salvation. He is the ultimate mover. He is the ultimate converter of the person's soul. And so if you are sitting in here today and you are saved and you have given your life to Christ, it is only because God has given you the gift of faith to believe him in the first place, right? Ephesians 2 talks about that. And so it talks about that while at the same time talking about the fact that she was listening to Paul preach and her ears were perked and she heard and she understood and she wanted to know more. And so, what we see here is this principle that God is the ultimate mover. God is the ultimate converter of souls. But his means of doing it is us, his people, his church. We are the mouthpiece of God. And so, Paul, being a faithful servant, is the mouthpiece of God for Lydia. And she's converted. She believes. She repents and puts her faith and trust in the Lord. And really, the point here is that God was the mover, and Paul did everything he could do. He did all that he could do. He, he did all that he could know and understand to proclaim to the best of his ability the gospel message to these people, right? Remember the context. Remember where they are. They're down by the river, right? Not in a van down by the river. Uh, it was a Chris Farley joke. You guys were paying attention. Good. Um... But they were down by the river. They were women gathered. They were not fully converted Jews, but they knew enough, right? And so Paul would have maybe had a conversation, kind of listened, and he would have known, like, okay, okay, I see where you're at. Okay, let me tell you about Jesus, right? He did everything he could do within his means to let these people hear and know about the love and awesomeness of Christ. But at the end of the day, They were dependent, or he was dependent rather, on the Spirit of God to move and make his mark on whomever God pleases to make his mark on. Which in this case, and in this text, it was Lydia. And so Lydia, her heart is open. She pays attention. Verse 15. And after she was baptized, and her household as well. Now, she's converted. She gets baptized. And then she has her household get baptized, which essentially means she's, she's converting her whole household. She's getting in on it. She's like, I'm in. I want, I'm, I'm totally sold out. I'm all for Christ. Yo, household, you're, you're joining me. And, and back in those days, because like you know, a household would have included family members, but it would also included servants, right? Um, they would have just gone with it because they're a part of the household. If the leader of the household said, this is what we're going to do, they're like, well, yeah. I live because of you, so therefore, okay, we're going to do that, right? And so the household and all of them get converted; they're all baptized into the faith. And let's 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 see what she see how her heart changes. She says, um, "And her household as well." She urged us, saying, "If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay." And she prevailed upon us. And so Lydia had been so moved. And so converted by the love and mercy of God through Christ. That now she, her only response, her only desire was to give back. And actually if you go throughout the history of Paul's missionary journeys after this point. The, the Philippian church was one of the churches that was the most generous to him. Always helped him when he was in need. And by any means that they could, they would. And, and really, people speculate that it's most likely because of this rich Lydia, seller of purple goods. She invites them into her home, right? And back then, her home would have been pretty decent size. They probably would have got their own rooms. Her servants probably would have served them and helped them. They probably would have had water. They could bathe, wash their stinky feet, you know, because they're like in the dirty sandals all day with dirt and grime and sweat and other fungi and all that kind of stuff on their feet they would have an opportunity to wash and so Lydia uses what she has and what she knows to bless Paul and his companions and she brings them in and then what most likely ends up happening is she establishes what becomes the church in Philippi right and so The question for us this morning, because this is all the text we're covering, which means I might get right out on time. Go, Jeremy. Okay. Just roll with this. Just Okay. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do with this text? Because what we have just done is we've looked at a narrative story about Paul converting a rich woman, Right? And at the beginning of the sermon, I gave you guys a bunch of fun facts about farming, which I know you didn't know, and so you can think of me afterwards. You're welcome. I'm really happy to give you more knowledge and enrich your life more as you go out to, you know, farm your crop. You're welcome. J-K-L-O-L. Okay. The reason is that when we look at this story, we see the, the theological truth, right? The balance that at the end of the day, God is ultimately in control. God is the one who converts. He's the one who saves the person. But that he does it through us. We are the means by which he does it. He's the ultimate mover. At the end of, day, of the day, for the farmer, you can do everything you can do within your means and your ability and your smarts and your knowledge and your tools to go out and produce a really good crop so that you can live another day, right? But at the end of the day, you are dependent on nature to do its job. And so for the Christian, for us, just like the farmer, we are dependent on the Lord to be the ultimate shaker and mover of the human soul. But he still uses us to do it. He still calls us to do it. He still calls us to come and preach and proclaim and make his name known to the world. We make his name known either through our actions by how we love others and how we treat others and serve others. We make it known by how we treat each other within this body. Right? They will know us by our love for each other. They will look in on the church and be like, bro, I'm like really jealous for the type of fellowship that you have in here. I want in. That's what people should look at the church and see. Right? That's the ideal. And so the call for us is to, and I have just two things, and I'll be done. The first thing is, well, really, bluntly, we're called to evangelize. It's not the preacher's job. Well, I mean, it is, but it's not just the preacher's job. It's not just the tele, well, actually, televangelists are garbage. What I meant to say is it's not just the evangelists that are called to go out. It's everyone. It's all of us. We are called to tell people about the hope that sustains us and gets us through life. We are called to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our call. All of us are called to do it. And I got two things for you to help spur you on towards that. The first thing is the movement of God. If we ultimately know that God is in control and he knows, that gives us boldness and confidence to go out and preach the gospel because we know that even if I stutter or say something really lame or if I get it a little wrong, the spirit's moving, the spirit's moving, that guy's going to get saved. Right? Even if the stick is a little crooked, it'll still do its job. And that's us a bunch of crooked sticks. But we're given boldness and confidence because the person's salvation isn't dependent on what we say or how well we say it, but it is dependent ultimately on the Spirit of God moving. But we're still called to say it. Does that make sense? We're still called to do the work. But because God is ultimately in control, because he's the shaker and mover of souls, that gives us boldness and confidence. Right? Um. You know, it reminds me of, like, the authority of a parent, right? If my daughter were to go upstairs in my house and say, hey, uh, it's time for dinner, come downstairs, the kids would be like, but, and I wish this worked more often than it does, but I'm going to say for the sake it actually does work. If she were to go upstairs and say, hey, guys, dad said it's time for dinner, then they're going to move, right? Now, again, I wish that's how it actually went, It doesn't actually go like that. But ideally, it would, right? Because she's coming on behalf of the authority of her dad. And if dad says so, it goes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm the dad. And so for us as the Christian, we move in boldness. We move in confidence because we know that God is moving. Another thing that it gives us is patience. It gives us patience because, like, I'll I'll use youth ministry as an example. I've been doing it here long enough that I have seen kids go from, like, 7th grade and graduate and move on. And I've seen kids come and go. I've seen kids come in a hot mess and then, like, run away. And I'm I'm really sad because they left and I had enjoyed the relationship I had with them. But then sometime later they call me up and they're like, hey, I just got baptized and the Lord has changed my life. And I'm going to this college where they're teaching me how to preach the gospel, right? Right? That's happened, by the way. Ask me later if you want to know who that was. But it's just a cool story. And so I've been in youth ministry long enough to see that. Because there was a time when I was like, oh, well, don't you know, I'm pray for that person, right? And I see that all the time. You work in youth ministry, and I just, I preach the gospel. I walk through scripture, and I just hope that God moves. And most of the time, it doesn't seem like they do, because let's be honest, teenagers, and yeah, I'm making fun of the ones in the back, too. Teenagers really don't pay attention that well, right? And I really, I have to like, it's like, ah, it's like a, oh, we'll come back. Let's come back to the text. And, ah, yeah, that's funny. Minecraft Fortnite joke. Let's come back to the text. Like, I do have to do that all the time. And so you have to have patience. But you ultimately have patience because you know that what? God is at work. God is in control. He's got it. I'm going to keep doing what I have to do faithfully. And he will move when he moves, right? Yeah, you can amen to that. It calls us to prayerfulness. We pray, we pray, we pray, because if God is in control, then he hears us, and he cares. He cares about the little things and the big things, and he is the ultimate mover of all things. Therefore, we pray and depend on him. So we pray. The last thing is the movement of Christians, what we are called to do, right? One, like I've already said, we preach the gospel, in season and out of season. Uh, before church started this morning, TJ was up here practicing, and I came into the church, and I made a joke, like, no one's, like, it's almost February, and this Christmas tree's still up, guys. I, I hope someone does that, you know, takes it down soon. And then I think TJ just, he totally Jesus-juked me. He was like, well, bro, we're called to, uh, you know, be about Christmas and Easter all year round, every day, man. And I was like, hmm, that's a good point, <laughs> Right? So I guess now this Christmas tree is going to be up for a while. Sorry. (laughs) Unless someone wants to take it down, then by all means, please do. Um, But the point is, is that we preach the gospel. We talk to people about Christ. Because if that's our ultimate hope and joy, right? When I get excited about something, I want to tell them about it, right? Like, ask my wife. Pretty much every day I get on Twitter and I have this account I follow. It's called Dad Jokes. And, oh, my gosh, they make me laugh so hard, and I get so giddy and excited. I run up to her, and I'm like, if I say, hey, Stephanie, hey, Stephanie, she knows. And she'll roll her eyes right away, and she'll be like, okay, oh, what? You know, and she goes with it. And sometimes I actually make her laugh. Most of the time she rolls her eyes and, you know, throws a ber- I did. I made Twyla laugh yesterday at the game because of my dad jokes. Anyways, but the, the point is, is that we are called to proclaim it. Because if it has shaken and moved us in our lives, we're called to do it. And we're doing it behind the authority of the God who's in control and who's using us, right? The next one says, we are instruments, right? We are his instruments. We are called to play his tune, right? I, I like using the example of a guitar because I'm a guitar player, right? I like to imagine I'm the guitar. If God is going to pick me up and play me, I'm going to play the tune of the gospel for him. And even if I am a, uh, an old acoustic guitar with a few holes in it and maybe a string's missing, and it's a little out of tune, hopefully not too bad out of tune, it's still gonna play a tune of the gospel. And if God so chooses to use that to convert someone, then He's gonna, right? So we are called to be His instruments. And the last thing this should create joy in us. Because God is doing something. This is God's world, this is God's plan, this is God's kingdom. And at the end of the day, or at the end of all ages, he's going to make all things right again. And that's our ultimate hope, right? Our ultimate hope is, is that someday we're going to stand on earth physically, and there will be no sin, there will be no death, there will be no pain, right? And so it brings us joy that we are a part of the plan of making that happen, right? That creates joy in us, it should We get to play a part in his story. God is moving people, and he's using you to do it. So what are you going to do to carry that story forward? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that you are a God who is in control, that you are a God who loves and is patient and is merciful and moves and works and has your way amongst your world. And thank you, Lord, that you use us to be a part of that. Help us to be emboldened by this. Also help us to be, by, uh, to be like Lydia in the story of Acts. To be so moved by the gospel that we joyfully give away the things we have and the resources we have and the talents and gifts that we have to better, further, and advance your gospel so that the world can know about you and who you are. Thank you for this time, and it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Have a good week, people.